0: We come to a passage this morning that not many pastors choose to preach. It's it's one that my flesh, if I'm honest, wants to avoid. It's one of the reasons why a church should preach through books of the Bible. Preaching through books of the Bible keeps pastors from cowering away from challenging passages. And these few verses that we look at this morning, without question, have more written about them, these few verses, than the rest of The pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus combined. This passage runs directly counter to the prevailing wisdom of our culture today. But I think most of you will leave here this morning encouraged by God's design. However, I'm guessing that some of you um, may leave here this morning a little bit hurt. But my hope is that all of us leave here today believing that I did not preach a different gospel. That is my aim. My aim is just to simply present the text in front of us and allow the Spirit of God to work all things according to the counsel of His will. So let's turn our Bibles this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is where I left off last week in verse 18. And we're going to read all the way through chapter 2. Paul writes this in first. Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. First of all, then... Who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let's, let's pray. Father, as we come to this passage, I pray that we, would, that we would hear your word and it would be like honey to our lips, that it wouldn't be bitter, that we wouldn't want to spit it out, that we'd want to embrace it. So it would help us to rightly understand uh, a passage today that is so uh, hard for a culture to understand. Help us to see the beauty. Give us ears to hear from you this morning. Help me to preach a true and faithful gospel. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So Paul begins this section by giving Timothy a second charge. He says this in verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may Wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Okay, a similar first charge was found earlier in verse 3. If just back up just a bit in verse 3, Paul says, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons, not to teach any different doctrine. Paul tells Timothy to wage the good warfare. He is to engage in this battle. And to make his point, Paul uses um, Hymenaeus and Alexander. Paul says that these men, they were false teachers. They had wandered away from the gospel. These men we don't know, but were probably elders in this church. Maybe they fell into some temptation and now have wandered away from the gospel. And it's interesting that Paul, he calls them out by name. Imagine reading this letter out out loud in the church at Ephesus when it was originally received, and he calls out Hymenaeus and Alexander. These were real men who the people obviously knew, maybe even looked up to. And now Paul says that they have made shipwreck of their faith. And the next step is to hand them over to Satan. Now, how in the world do... You hand someone over to Satan. What does that mean? Do you call up Satan? He comes to the church, and you say, I'm an Alexander, uh, there's somebody out back wanting to see you, and you kind of entered, hand him over to Satan. What does this look like? What does it mean to hand someone over to Satan? And why would Paul instruct the church at Ephesus to do this? Now, I'm not 100% sure, but what I think Paul means here is what he's describing is, other places you can put it together and piece it together, and I think he's talking about church discipline. The only other reference to this phrase is also from Paul, found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Listen to what Paul says to the church at Corinth after one of their members had unrepented sexual sin in their life. Paul says, when you, and here's, it's plural, so the Appalachian version, the y'all, when y'all are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present... With the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man, this unrepented man, to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. I think what's happening here in First Timothy Corinthians is the church is physically removing someone from church membership. You are physically doing what they have already done spiritually. They're not repenting, and people who don't repent. Are not being followers of Christ, so they're basically physically removing them. And then both—you um, see—in First Corinthians five, First Timothy one eighteen, they both have a purpose statement. And I don't know if you caught this. What was the purpose? The purpose of church discipline is always, always about restoration. Okay, it's not just hey they're not living a certain way, kick them out. No, like. We, we, want, we want everyone to seek after Christ, follow Christ. We, we, want, we want to see repentance. And so that is the aim, is restoration. The purpose is always to gain back, to win back your brother or sister. It's not to remove someone from the church. It's never the aim. So Paul gives Timothy this challenging charge, and then he shows Timothy how he is to fulfill this charge in verse 1. There's a connection here. Chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then... I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So Paul, he urges Timothy and us to pray, to pray for all people. And the word then, first of all, then, shows us that this comes out of the charge that Timothy received in order to silence this false teaching. But it also shows us how prayer advances the gospel mission. We are praying for all people that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Now think about who Paul, who Paul um, he says that this church, Ephesus, should pray for, and think about his context. He says to pray for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Now think about Paul. At this time, he's riding under the reign of the emperor Nero. Nero was a wicked ruler, violently persecuted Christians. And Paul tells us to pray for the king you suffer under. That, that's incredible witness for the church, to pray for the leader that you don't agree with, to pray for the ruler you don't approve of. This is the will of God. This is why we should be praying for Every person in political leadership in our city, our state, our country, we're praying for these men and women. Not only are we praying for these leaders, but we are praying for ourselves. We're praying that we would lead a peaceful and quiet life. Paul says in verse 3 that this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Notice that the gospel is not offered to a single nation or to a particular people group. This is the good news, that the one true and only God over all humanity does not desire the death of any sinner, but that all would repent and have eternal life. That's his prayer. That's his desire. Now, it's one thing to just have a desire. Like, you know, most people would say they have a desire for no one to go to bed hungry tonight. But how many people actually did something about it? That? Like, how did they do something to make it change? We see in this passage that Jesus did not just have the desire for all to be saved, but he actually had actions that backed up that desire. Verse 6 says that Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. No one took his life, he willingly gave himself as a sacrifice to appease the wrath of God. And now Jesus serves as a mediator. A mediator is someone who brings reconciliation between two parties who have conflict. So the reason we need a mediator is because all people are at conflict with the holy God. The Bible teaches that we, humanity, we are the offending party, and God is the offended party. And the way that Jesus makes possible peace between man and God is by dying in man's place. And I love the tense in verse 5. Jesus gave himself, past tense in verse 6, But notice the tense in verse 5. It's present tense. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus did give his life as a ransom, but our God's not dead. He's alive, and he's reigning and ruling in heaven, serving now as a mediator between God and man. He's there listening to you, your suffering, your oppression. So verses 1 through 5, we see God's desire for all mankind... But the next section, we see a shift from all mankind to specifically addressing men and women. And I would say not just one through five, but one through seven. So now some have looked at verses eight through 15, this next section, and said this section deals with husbands and wives, not men and women, because the word for man, it can be translated as husband. The word for woman can be translated as wife. However, it seems a bit strange for Paul to limit prayer to only husbands, and why would he not include single men here if the word should mean husbands? The same is true about modesty and teaching for women. Surely Paul didn't think modesty was just for married women. So I think it is better to view this section as a clear contrast between men and women. And when it comes to this section, usually there are three ways people approach this section. People will either reject it, and I would say that's probably most. Some will reinterpret it, or lastly, they will embrace it. So let's look at these. People reject it because it seems so archaic, right? We, we read 8 through 15. We're like, that's so archaic. It's, this is just another sign of patristic oppression of women. Um, this view will put Scripture against Scripture, uh, you've probably heard these types of arguments. This is where people will say, you know, I, I don't trust 1 Timothy chapter 2. Um, you know, I, I think we should view women how Jesus views women, not how Paul views women. Let's well, just say poor and dangerous view of Scripture. What, what you're doing is you're putting Jesus and Paul at opposition. Um, so others may reject this passage because they believe the gospel does not make a difference between genders. We're seeing more and more of that today. Uh, they will use. They will misuse a verse like Galatians three twenty eight. Galatians three twenty eight says, "There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus." This, this is really. It's a poor understanding of this verse. It's not saying that there is no more gender, and this is where people with you know this whole gender fluid concept they will go to this verse and misuse it. Uh, One author writes this, "'Confusion over the meaning of manhood and womanhood "'today is epidemic. "'The consequence of this confusion "'is not a free and happy harmony "'among gender-free persons. "'The consequence, rather, is more divorce, "'more homosexuality, more sexual abuse, "'more promiscuity, more social awkwardness, "'more emotional distress and suicide "'that comes with the loss of God-given identity.'" You even saw before the um, U.S. Supreme Court uh, Justice uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson, before she was sworn in the office, you probably saw this. She was asked, "What is a woman?" And her response was, "I'm not a biologist." And I think part of it was just not wanting to, uh, you know, open up the can of worms. So she just said, "I'm not a biologist." But our culture struggles to see the difference between men and women. So when it comes to this passage defining the differences between genders. Our culture just simply wants to reject it. And so some will simply reject this passage altogether. It, it, it's archaic. We just, it's, it's obtuse. We don't use it anymore. But others, they won't reinterpret it. And this is the pretty common view among evangelicals today. A lot of churches will just reinterpret this. They will arrive at this challenging passage and say, well, the reason Paul is writing these things is because the men and women at Ephesus have these issues. Men aren't praying, and women aren't, are Women are being unruly. This was an Ephesus problem, and it doesn't apply to us today. I understand this point, and you know, I, I get the logic of this type of thinking. It it even sounds educated and enlightening, but this type of thinking has some major holes in it. Uh, now, I do think these were problems in Ephesus, absolutely. But I just think we need to be consistent when we have that type of hermeneutic. For instance, so this is, this is a letter written to Timothy who's pastoring the church at Ephesus. Let's just go to Ephesians for a moment. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, or it's going to be on the screen, and look down at verse 22. This is another challenging passage that Paul writes that people would usually reinterpret this passage. It says this, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Let me just make a side note here. It doesn't say women submit to men, but it says wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, I'm not going to unpack this passage, um, but what I want you to see is that I've heard Many say that this was an issue in Ephesus. This, you know, they had unruly women. Passages like 1 Timothy 2 and Ephesians 5 should be interpreted with the understanding that Paul was addressing a specific problem in Ephesus. So Ephesians 5 is not written for us today. I get it. I understand what they're trying to do. But let's just be consistent. If that is how you interpret Ephesians 5.22, which there's a little subheading directly above it in my Bible, verse 22, it says husbands and wives. Then if you just jump down to the next subheading, you come to chapter 6, and it says children obey parents. And this is all off, coming from the same command in um, Ephesians 5. And here, chapter 6, verse 1 says, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, this is the first commandment, with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I'm just asking that we at least be consistent. If the section on wives and husbands was written because Paul was addressing a specific problem in the church and does not apply to us today then the exact same logic needs to apply to this section in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. There must have been a problem in Ephesus with unruly children. Children didn't obey their parents. Fathers were provoking their children to anger. So Paul was trying to correct this. Because this was Paul addressing the specific problem in Ephesus, then children don't have to obey their parents today, right? That's the That's the logic. Fathers don't have to have self-control. Now, I'm guessing most of you are glad that the kids are off in kids' class and didn't hear me say that children no longer have to obey their parents. I mean, how silly is that? Of course children still need to obey their parents. I think the problem today isn't that children don't obey their parents. The problem today is that we don't have parents who will make their children obey the parents. That is the problem I see today in our culture. So I I don't think we can just write this off as Paul is just addressing some specific issue in the first century. And as challenging as this may be, these topics still apply to us today. Which brings me to the third way people look at this passage. Some reject it, most reinterpret it, and few will embrace it. There's something beautiful about gender and gender roles. I, I know, I, I get it, I'm part of the patriarch, so of course I'm going to appreciate gender roles, right? Men rule the world, and I'm just furthering the problem. I just think we see something beautiful in the handiwork of God when it comes to gender and gender roles. I think Satan has deceived us on this issue and has divided so many churches, so many families. So with that said, let me let us turn our attention back to 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 8 through 15. Verse 8 says, "I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling." Now this makes sense that men are being addressed here for me. I think most prayer warriors in the churches that I've served are women. Men are not often people of prayer. And so Paul says that in every place, the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. When you see lifting hands in scripture, it usually has this idea of of being a beggar or showing that you're ready to receive something from God. But the lifting of holy hands, it cannot be the only mode to pray. Um, We we see other patterns in scripture, uh, and I don't think this is the, the point that Paul is making here. One author comments, the point of the hands is that they are to be holy. Uh, It's not so much highlighting the lifted part, but the holy part of the hands. That's the key of activity um, that is being without anger or quarreling. So men should be praying holy hands without anger or quarreling. When men pray, they must not fight. Then Paul transitions from addressing men to now addressing the women. And this is where it gets interesting really fast. Verse 9. Likewise, also the women, that, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self control, not with braided hair or in gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So the likewise at the beginning of verse 9, it's connecting the behavior of the women with the behavior of the men. There's something there. Uh, that ties them together. There are basically two things going on here in this section with the women. Modesty and and learning. Um, The first issue, which concerns modesty, shouldn't be that controversial, but sadly it is. Some will complain that men can wear anything they want, but women are required to dress to men's requirements. But notice that the text does not say this. Just because men's attire is not addressed does not, mean, does not mean that men can just wear any old thing. Much like the passage which deals with men praying does not include women, but surely Paul would still expect the women to pray with holy hands as well. So Paul commends the women in the church to adorn themselves in respectable apparel. They are to adorn themselves in respectable apparel. The women are picking out their own clothes with wisdom to reflect their godliness, okay? The men aren't telling the women what to wear. It would be bad for all of society if men had to lay out the women's clothing, right? The idea behind this command is not to draw physical attention towards oneself. As Christians, we are supposed to bring attention to Christ and away from ourselves. Paul is saying that these ladies were using these items to bring attention upon themselves. And as for the list of items mentioned here, notice that there's an attention given to the cost. The the idea is that the world draws attention uh, to the worldly wealth, but Paul did not want the church to make those kind of financial distinctions among themselves. We don't want to have divisions in the church. So part of Paul mentioning the the hairstyles, gold, pearls, and the expensive apparel is that these things were highlighting differences, distinctions between the wealthy in the church and the poor in the church. Paul is saying that this is how the world behaves. Put people in categories, rich and poor. And Paul's saying, you know, we as the church, we should not be having these kind of categories. So there were some women using their dress to assert their social status. And to these women, Paul says, to not adorn yourself with that which draws attention to you, especially when you gather with the church for worship. One author writes, Without some specifics, the generalities of Paul's desire would be too vague to implement. With the specifics, legalists and Pharisees try to argue about the detailed applications. Paul is not saying that women must never, under any circumstance, braid their hair or wear a gold ring or a pearl necklace. He is not of the legalistic mindset that details how long the skirt must fall or how much arm may be revealed. In fact, it is just the opposite. He is calling upon the women to think for themselves about how they choose to adorn themselves so they can present themselves in a way that is consistent with their Christian calling. The same author goes on to say, the point Paul is making is that God has said to all people at all times in all cultures not to be adorned with things that draw other people's attention for the wrong reasons. That principle remains true even today. Next, Paul transitions from modesty to concepts of Teaching, learning, submission. So look down at verse 11 as I continue to get canceled this morning. <laughs> Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over, over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, this, is, this first gets to the question of can a woman be a pastor? And I think this is the wrong question to ask. Because this question, can a woman be a pastor, it's a question about ability, right? Can a woman be a pastor? I've seen many women who have more ability, more skills, better administration, better planning, better communication skills than most men. I am married to one of these types of women. But the better question is, should women be pastors? When the question is phrased this way, it does not challenge what a woman is capable of, but is a question rooted more in the authoritative text. Can a woman be a pastor? Well, of course she can be, but should a woman be a pastor? It seems like the Bible is clear on this answer that it's no. I think part of the issue in our culture that that we just have a poor understanding of submission. We just we don't like it, we don't really understand it. We think submitting to someone makes you less valuable. Whoever's in charge, they're more important. It's kind of how we think of it. Let's think about the Trinity for a moment. You have Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Okay, each fully God, Bible says each, each fully God. Each are distinct beings. The Father is never the Son, the Son is never the Holy Spirit. Jesus submitted to his Father, right? We see that in the garden, John's Gospel. But this does not make Jesus less valuable than the Heavenly Father. So if God is one and exists in three distinct persons, and each with different roles, like the Spirit does things that Jesus doesn't do, The Father does things that the Spirit doesn't do. They have distinct roles. And we were were created in His image. Then doesn't it make sense that man and woman would be equal in value, yet possibly have distinct roles like that which we, we reflect in creation after His likeness? I heard this illustration years ago from another pastor, so let me take his illustration and put it in my context. I'm going to read four statements about my wife, Olivia, and I just want you just to set and and just how do these statements make you feel, okay? You ready? My wife, she is a highly educated woman who has laid down all her pursuits in order to submit herself to my vision for the family. My wife does not contradict me in front of others. Number three, my wife communicates to myself and others the vision that I have established for our family. Number four, my wife has forsaken other opportunities for independent self fulfillment of her gifts in order to put her gifts under submission for me and my vision for our family. Okay, as I read those four statements, some of you, you've cringed, some of you thought i I've heard enough, as soon as he prays, I'm out, I'm leaving. But watch what happens when I tweak these statements just a bit. You ready? So several years ago, Condoleezza Rice, she was the Secretary of State for President George W. Bush. I'm going to read the same statements, I'm just going to tweak them just a bit. Number one, Dr. Condoleezza Rice is a highly educated woman who has laid down all her pursuits in order to submit herself to President Bush's vision for the country. Number two, Dr. Rice does not contradict President Bush in public. Number three, Dr. Rice committed herself and her vision for President Bush's administration's vision and not her own. Number four, Dr. Rice has forsaken other opportunities for independent self-fulfillment of her gifts for the sake of helping President Bush fulfill his agenda. Isn't that strange? How come Condoleezza Rice doesn't, and she's a hero? We look at her and like, wow, that's amazing. But when Olivia does it, there's just something archaic about it, right? It sounds oppressing when my wife does it. I think it's because we've been deceived to have a very low view of biblical marriage and submission. Some of you believe that working for some man in the White House has more value than laying your life down beside a man who would lay his life down for you. So now in just a few verses, and this will be next week, Paul talks about the qualifications for elders, pastors, with authority in the church. And these elders, they expresses authority by teaching. There's a connection, I think, in chapter 2, teaching, chapter 3, teaching. In chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says that one of the qualifications for an elder must be that he is able to teach. It's one of the qualifications. If he can't teach, he shouldn't not be uh, a pastor. He's unqualified. We see the same thing in 1 Timothy 5, where Paul said in verse 17, let the elders who rule or lead, can be translated there, who rule well, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So the picture in 1 Timothy 2 is clear that elders do two primary things. They they, they lead, or as the ESV translated, they, they rule and they teach. That's the two things, and we'll see that next week. So when Paul said women are not to teach or exercise authority over men, he was specifically acknowledging these two primary responsibilities of an elder. I mean, obviously, if we just hold all Scripture together, obviously this does not mean that women should not teach blanket statement in the church. There are plenty of places in the New Testament where it, we see that Paul and other authors are encouraging women to teach. Here are just some examples. Even Timothy. Timothy received instruction from his mother and grandmother. So this would be two women teaching a man, okay? Priscilla and her husband Aquila both took Apollos aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. Okay? So Priscilla is teaching Apollos. The Great Commission is written to men and women, and it says, teaching people to obey or observe everything Christ has commanded. In the letter written to the, to the um, Colossians, Paul told the whole church, which would include men and women, to be teaching and admonishing one another as the word of Christ dwells in them richly. So there's women teaching there. Paul seemed to allow for women praying, prophesying in public worship, though with proper humility and submission. So women who are gifted at teaching should use their gifts to build up the body of Christ, but just not in the role of elder. Now, as I say this, there's probably a million questions and sneers going through your minds. Questions that the Bible probably does not clearly spell out. Can a woman be a youth director? Director of music ministry? Can a woman preach a sermon yet just not be an elder? Can a woman be the leader of a community group? These are all great questions that Bruce Mosser would love to address with you sometime this week. <laughs> and notice all these questions started with the word can. We're not talking about ability this, this morning. Like I look around, man, like there's just a ton of gifted women who are or more, you know, gifted with ability than the men in this room. We're not talking about ability. Paul gives his reasoning, verse thirteen, why women should not be elders. Verse thirteen, it says, "For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith." And love and holiness with self-control. Here, Paul goes back to the created order to explain the reasoning why. Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became transgressor. I'm sure that cleared up everything, right? If anything, Paul's explanation can just bring more confusion to this passage. This is actually why some believe, I mentioned this earlier, that verses 11-12 should be translated as wife instead of A wife instead of woman, because Paul's reasoning here—he goes to Adam and Eve, which is he's given an example of marriage. So maybe verses eleven and twelve shouldn't be dealing with men and women; it should be dealing with husband and wife. But when you keep this passage in greater context, I still think women and men are better translations here. So he ties it back to created order, thinking back to Genesis three. There's the fall of mankind. The woman was deceived. Eve Eve says that the serpent deceived me. She rightly admits it in Genesis chapter 3. Then God says to the man in Genesis 3 verse 17, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. So God is restoring order here. Genesis 2, the order goes, God created man who's supposed to lead his family. And they're supposed together supposed to have um, um, dominion over all of creation. You get to chapter 3, and you see it completely flipped. You see the, the creation, um, Satan, the serpent, the beast, in chapter 3, leading the woman, giving her instruction. And then she was instructing the man, and God was underneath them all. So God, chapter 3, is restoring this order. And he's saying, look, you you listen to your wife instead of listening to me. So that's what Adam was guilty of. He was submitting and listening to the woman rather than God. So Eve's wrongdoing was to teach and to lead her husband. Adam's was to accept her lead and her teaching. So Paul was just reminding the church of this created order. This passage is about women submitting to men. This passage is actually about the church submitting to the leaders in the church. This is consistent with Scripture. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, this passage frightens me as a church leader that I'm gonna have to stand before the Lord one day and give an account for how I cared for you, how I shepherded you. That frightens me. Paul makes one final point in verse 15. He says, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, what are we making this verse? Let's quickly eliminate at least one way of understanding this, that that the only way a woman can be saved is through the act of giving birth. This this is how some people understand this, and it's just really silly. There there is not one way for men to be saved and another for women. Uh, Also, not all women are able to give birth. So this would exclude many women. Also, this would also make salvation by works, not by faith. So there are many, many, many reasons why this is not a good way to understand this verse. I think the better way to understand this verse is she will be saved through childbearing means that there is a child who is to come that will bring salvation. Now, there's another way to understand this, and it's that the word saved means like preserve, like keep away from. And in context of chapter 5, there's this same, same word here, For saved is used in chapter 5, and it's talking about women being busy. Uh, And so women having children keeps them busy, and so she will be preserved, um, not maybe led astray by being busy with caring for her home. I lean more towards, I think this is a picture here, that there is a child who is to come who would bring salvation. I think this is a picture of the coming of Christ. And so how would this child save? I think we saw this back in verse 5. There is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Men and women, rich and poor, king, servant, all cultures, all peoples, all races. This is why we pray for the nations Because he gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus willingly gave himself as a ransom for all. Jesus paid the price so that sinners could be in right relationship with the holy God. Have you embraced this truth this morning? Jesus has made a way for you to have peace with him. He has given you the gift of salvation, but have you received it? Have you accepted it? Have you embraced it? You are not a part of his family until you repent of your sin and trust in him for salvation. If you've never repented of sin and placed your trust in Christ, I'm just going to be in the back during the next couple songs. If you want to come and talk to me, I would love to let you know more about this gift that Christ has extended to all. Um, He's calling you. He loves you. He desires you. He wants you to bow down and submit to his leadership. Something Eve did not do, something Adam did not do, and there's consequences. And so all of humanity will stand before a holy God one day and give an account. So let's pray as the band comes back up to lead us. If you need prayer, I'd love to be, um, I'll just be in the back I'd love to pray with you. And Lord, I pray that this morning that we would embrace Your Word, that it would be pleasing, that it would be sweet to our lips. And Lord, for those that may um, may want to embrace but maybe not understand, I pray that You'd give them um, the ability to, to reason and understand and. And humble and submit themselves to you. Lord, I pray if there's someone here that has never repented of sin and trusting in you, I pray that you're working in their heart now to to let them know that that's them. That they're here this morning to hear this message. That you want them uh, to become a son or daughter. Lord, I pray that you'd convict them of their sin. Lord Jesus, may we embrace these truths. May we Be a healthy church that understands that you've created men and women to be equal in value and worth and dignity. And may we treat men and women as such. May we never oppress each other. Lord, may we understand that distinctions of roles do not devalue us. They're just different, just as you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, are different and distinct in roles. May we not see roles as creating value and worth for us. May they just be something different and unique in how you created us. May we embrace these truths. May we be a healthy church that reflects your creation. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.